Megalune, he, suke, mu, tan, kurian. It magnifies the soul of me, the Lord. I've had trouble with that phrase most of my Christianity, probably, because, I mean, how often do you magnify things? Um, I had a microscope when I was a kid. I used that to magnify things. I had a magnifying glass. I once heard you could kill ants with it, but I wasn't patient enough to wait. It didn't happen fast enough, so I gave up. Uh, but you can see I'm bigger, right? Oh, there you go. Magnify. See it bigger. That's technically the meaning of the word. You heard the sound of it a moment ago. Again, mega lune, uh, from the root word mega, which is more common in the New Testament. And again, it does mean just great. It can mean big because a lot of times we think things are great big, right? We, we, we put those together. But it's really not about like God's actual size, right? Or, or much more about how somehow we are going to make God bigger. My soul magnifies the Lord. Does it make God bigger? But right there with magnify being a word that's not common, it's hard to know what she means, I think. Um, I don't think it's hard entirely, but it is for us modern people, and especially Lutherans. Along with magnifying, the thing that's supposed to do the magnifying of God is your soul. And my guess is you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about your soul as your soul. Like the last time you sat down and said, hey, soul, how are you doing within me? Right? Uh, there's not a lot of time for soul reflection, right? Or, or, or pondering is the way that maybe uh, 100 years ago people would have talked about it. In the Far East, of course, they spend hours sitting there just contemplating. And it's because they're aware that as humans, we're more than just bodies. We're also souls. We also have an inner life. And that that inner life can be in harmony or in chaos. And that if you never attend to your inner life, it's going to be in chaos. That's why Buddhism is what it is. They're like, well, if you sit here and think, it gets better. <laughs> and they're right. We actually could use some time pondering just what is. Because the soul in America, I'll tell you, is overloaded. You're overburdened. There's too much for you to discern. It wearies you. It makes you tired. It doesn't make you want to sink. In any case, you have a soul. And paying attention to the idea that you have a soul, and most people don't think you do. They just think you have some sort of body, and even that's just a shell. And we're all going to go to some great mountaintop somewhere, maybe, or we'll just vanish and blink out. All of that's not language that helps you take care of your soul. I would suggest the only language that helps you take care of your soul is the scriptures that talk about it. And what's your soul for? To magnify God. That, that's kind of the point here. That humans are given souls for what Mary does at this moment. To magnify God. Her soul magnifies God. So for us today to leave here, we need to not only know we have souls, we want to have souls that we know as Christians magnify God. And again, we'll come back to what that means. But then also, Megalune. Estuke mu, my soul, ton kurion, the Lord. For a while now, I have been promoting, um, coffee, don't distract me. I don't need you. Um, for a while now, I have been promoting 
something called the Sons of Solomon. It's a prayer discipline. It's nine Psalms that any man is encouraged to pray every day so that they become like his heartbeat or the clock of his devotions. And what will happen is he'll get to know these Psalms really, really well. They'll become part of his identity, part of his convictions. And there's a lot of men out there, young men out there, who are finding just how powerful this is. Yeah, thank you. Somebody testified without me saying it. I appreciate that, Titus. Um, uh, as I've been promoting it myself, there's others who are in this. It's got a life of its own, and that's what's beautiful about it. It's the word of God. But as I've been promoting it on my Saturday morning show, I am telling people that when you do this, when you open up the Psalter, and you begin to pray it, try, whenever you see the word, the Lord, in all caps, inserting the name Jesus Christ. Just say Jesus Christ instead of the Lord. And you'll find that it makes a tremendous impact on what you're doing. You'll be like, that's a really good verse. I like this verse. And it's so simple. It's such a simple thing. So Saturday, I finally got the question from somebody. No, I, they said, I started doing this. It's really amazing, but I really don't know why you said to do it. And I'm not even sure if it's really right. Where in the Bible does it say to do this? And you know, my wife's reading the questions now. She's on the show as well. And, and she saw me like, I'm like in my seat, like the kid in third grade. Like, oh, oh, I know the answer, right? I was so ready to go on this one. Um, because it's the, it's the most glorious and ancient confession of the church. Like the thing they got killed for right away was for saying this. Jesus is Lord. Like that is the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. And by that, they mean not just Caesar, although he's that too. They mean the Old Testament God, Yahweh. His name was Yahweh. Eventually, the Hebrew peoples decided that his name was too holy for them to speak. And so they started saying the Lord, in Hebrew, Adonai, instead of Yahweh. And then eventually, they started putting the vowel sounds for Adonai in place of the, or around the name Yahweh, so that later German scholars thought that the name was Jehovah, and that's a long story. But can you see how God gave them a name to use? He said, use my name, call upon my name, sing praises to my name. And what did they do over hundreds and hundreds of years? They buried the name behind the word, the Lord. So that throughout the Greek Old Testament, you don't have Yahweh, you just have Kyrion, the Lord, but now again, here comes Jesus and he says, I am Kyrion, right? Jesus is Lord. He's claiming not only to be king, he's claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. So since that's what Christianity is, it really makes sense to go back wherever you find the God of the Old Testament and believe Jesus is there. Is he there as man? Well, in time, he was born of the virgin several you know, thousand years after a lot of these events. But before he was born of a virgin, he was nonetheless the ever-sired son of God. Huh? And from eternity, the crucifixion has been known as the elective plan of creation. And so it's not as though he didn't have the knowledge of what he would do on the cross in all those types and shadows of old. The blood of bulls and goats is pointing forward to something very, very real. Huh? The Lord Jesus knew of old how he would die and set in place all the things to provide that moment, the fullness of time, for it to happen on our behalf. Yeah? As a result, you may look at the Old Testament and say that Jesus is Lord. Not only may, you must. You must. Right? 
You don't get to the Father without Jesus. You don't get the Holy Spirit without Jesus. You cannot separate them. He is the intermediary now. He's your king. So now, Megalune Hesuke Mu Ton Kurion. My soul magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now, I told you that the magnify word still is, is not quite done. And here's where one of the other things I, I keep talking about other places, and now I got to start bringing it to you here at the church because it is, it's a problem for us as Lutherans. I don't mean you. I don't mean St. Paul. I don't mean the LCMS. I mean all of us. Uh, and the problem is this. We've had such zeal, such good zeal for stopping false teaching, for making it so that people don't take the Bible and lie with it. That for hundreds of years now, we've been the best catalogers of the lies. We have all these books on what we call doctrine, and mostly what they are is a catalog of false teaching, and then where in the Bible you can find out why it's false. Now, this is very useful. It really is. If you don't want to be deceived, there is bar none, no better place to go look than in classic Lutheran doctrine. It is like the encyclopedia of the Bible's answers. With all of that said, English has continued to move on as we've done this. And if you don't notice, the language is changing under our feet. It always does this. It decays. That's called babble. But something about the internet and mass communication has kind of amplified our, well, the way we talk differently now. <laughs> uh, it keeps changing more quickly. The babble is under us. And so what's happened then is Lutherans have worked very hard to only say things certain ways that at this point are effectively non-communicative in the current climate. Now, maybe what I just said it didn't even make sense. We don't make sense when we talk to people. We talk highfalutin. And our highfalutin words, well, they are in the Bible sometimes, but a lot of times, and this is the scary thing, we use them to tell people why what the Bible says is something they can't say. Like that you're a born-again Christian, or that you're a spirit-filled Christian. Huh? There's more than just that. I continue to run into these passages of Scripture. Oh, here's one. So I've been listening to some contemporary music, Christian music recently. Um, for fun. It's what I listen to when I drive and maybe in the morning when I sit by my lake. Uh, it's not the kind of thing I'd ever want in this room. And I'll tell you precisely why. My, one of my favorite songs, it's called Chain Breaker by Zach Williams. It's amazing. But if Zach Williams is not singing that song, it's not going to be as good because most of what makes it good is his pain as he sings about how Jesus saves him from his pain. That's amazing. I want more of that in my life, but that's not what church is. And that's why we don't want those things here where we sing as a group. But again, one of the things he says, he has this set of lines. He's a Baptist Baptist. He's a decision theology Baptist. He probably has altar calls at his concerts. He says, if you believe it, if you can feel it, if you receive it, somebody testify. Oh, where'd I get that? Yeah. <laughs> and that's actually from the song, right? Somebody testify. Thank you. If you believe it, if you feel it, if you receive it. So the Lutheran in me goes, receive it. That's decision theology. That means you have to do something to be saved. I can't sing this anymore. And so I started thinking, and I always do this with a song like this. If I like everything else, I try to think of one word to sing out loud in place of the word I don't like. But then I remembered one of my favorite Bible verses from before I went to the seminary. I think it's John 1, 12. To those who believed in him, to those who received his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
So again, another example. Here I am, pastor, Orthodox, Lutheran, known in the world for preaching, and I hear a Christian say a Bible verse, and I say, that's wrong. Because I've gotten so ready to see the devil that I haven't been able to see Christ when he's being confessed by other Christians who indeed may not have everything right, but who are also fighting the same war. And this is where then Christians, whoever you are, wherever you are, listen to Mary. How does she fight? Magnify God with me, she says. Magnify God with me. Lutherans, what have we not been doing that the Baptists are doing? Well, they're magnifying God among the nations. They let it be known who they believe in. We go quietly about our lives. There's something to be said about that too. There's something good about that. But not when it means letting the evildoer not be answered. Not when it means letting lies go about us and saying, oh yes, oh yes. Or flattering the person rather than disagreeing with them. Then this is problems. Then we're not magnifying God. Now again, what does it mean to magnify God? Let me give it to you super simple. It means that Jesus enters into you by means of flesh and blood, word and sacrament, and that when you go out into this world as the God-bearer, you have words that the world will pass away, but they will not pass away. And whenever you speak them anywhere in the world, you have, in fact, made God bigger to the evil in that world that's resisting him. Now, he's not actually bigger, right? But you are the extension of his presence. You are his war. And he, sending you as warriors out into that darkness, are magnifying his presence there simply by being there. You're holy simply by being a Christian. And now, just imagine you open your mouth and say, Alleluia. Alleluia. Story. My, um, uh, I don't want to call names out because I don't want to hurt anybody, but it's hard. I might accidentally. Um, it's a good story. Uh, Someone I care about very deeply has a job they go to. And at that job recently, there's been a new experience. And this new experience is that the name of Jesus is in the air. That's not quite a way that makes my friend feel comfortable. Because it's, it's like, Jesus Christ. And it's often, it's not just once now, it's, it was often. And the thing about people who exclaim, Jesus Christ, as a means of anger or expressing their frustration and their hurt at life, they're not saying the whole phrase, right? So you really got to hear what they're saying. I'm going to say it. What they're saying is, God damn Jesus Christ. That's what they're saying. And that's why it hurts you when you hear it, because you know how evil that is. So my friend approached me and said, well, I'm at work. You know, it's, it's a big environment. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of Christians there, but they aren't really active or thinking Christians. So, so I don't know what to do. And I had, I had kind of two thoughts on this. Well, three, really, because it brought something to mind that I've pondered before, and it does disturb me. So a, a tangent from the story, then we'll come back to the story. I told you the story, another one, about how I cursed my house. Do you remember this? I bought a house a year ago. And like within a month, sitting on the patio, water drop falls off the gutter on my Bible. And I look up at my own gutter and I say, a pox on you. I have gutters hopefully being installed this week. Um, I happen to have a, a, a roof leak this winter as well. Now, I don't think any of it happened precisely because I said a pox on you. And yet I'm aware that my tongue did say that. Um, I'm also aware that the moment I said it, I said, Jesus Christ, have mercy. Because I knew what I said. And it's a wonderful lesson for my part in how just... Guarding your tongue is a good idea. It, it doesn't always do what you meant. Right? 
Now, imagine for a moment, though, that we are held accountable to all of our words. That as a Christian, when I pray a pox on my house, God's like, well, okay, you know. Um, let's take that a step further and forget Christians. Because Christians, we're under the grace of God. But now, imagine that you're not a Christian. You're a pagan. And you're walking around saying, God damn Jesus Christ all the time. And God damn this and God damn that and God damn this and Jesus Christ and this and that. How long until he does? And if you're a Christian in that environment, do you really want to be there? No. So what can you do? Back to the question. And here's my suggestion. I really, really would love to see the world try this. Anywhere in the world. you got two options. They're both pretty easy. Someone says, Jesus Christ. Say, Jesus Christ. Let's throw it back out there. It'll be hard the first time. I've tried it once. I was really quiet. They didn't hear me. But I got it out. I got it out. So throw Jesus Christ back out there. And when they look at you, they'll be like, oh, he's my God. What am I supposed to do? You know, you cursed him. I blessed him. That might be a bit forward. So again, curse word, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That'll really get him. Yeah? Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. They look at you. Say, He's my God. What am I supposed to do? You said his name. I praise him. Go ahead. Keep saying his name. Yeah, they say it. Say hallelujah. How long till he stops? How long till he joins you? I don't know. Depends on the person and your courage to not let the world silence you. To be the God-bearer where you are. Now, before you try to fight face-to-face -face with some other human who hates God, try it just in your own life, too. I got a corner. We come around by our house in order to come home, and uh, it's got some beautiful trees. And I've kind of hidden a statue of St. Michael slaying the dragon that I've had for years in a cove in one of those trees that just happens to be there. I carried the statue for years. It had nowhere to go in my house. It's so dark. My wife's like, why are we have this thing? It fits into this tree. It's really beautiful. So it's like there is a the little chapel yeah? um, in my neighborhood on a, on a triangle piece that belongs to the government, whatever. Every time I drive by, I say, alleluia. My little chapel, what does it do? It reminds me. It's a focal point. That's all it is. It's a reminder to say, hallelujah. Why do I do that? Because in the public square in my neighborhood, even though nobody's there, I know angels are watching. I know my father is listening. And I'm praying for that public square as my city and my country, uh, as, as my foot on America, as my desire to live under kings who are good, who do not steal, who do not lie, who do not compel things like adultery and abortion upon the people. Nah? So again, <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Ah. Open your mouth this week, right? If you take anything out, you're a son of God who bear God with you to open your mouth and speak light into the darkness. And it will feel hard and you will feel resistance. But I promise you, it is strength. It is faith. It is the war the spirit has for you to fight. And Mary again encourages you. My soul magnifies the Lord. I talk about God when I know God is present. And as Christians, again, it's always, it's always. All right. So we're about 20 minutes in. It's a hot day. The sound system isn't working. Yada, yada. We're going to try to go maybe, maybe 10 or 15 more here. I'm going to try to keep it to 10. Um, we're going to look at the Magnificat text word by word here through the Greek, okay? Um, so I'm going to speak some Greek. I'm going to translate it kind of in, as we go. It'll sound a little not Englishy, uh, but you'll hear kind of the Greek. 
and then I'm going to try to amplify pieces of it all the way through. So as you go on your way, again, you can take with you praise. You can magnify God with praise. Remember, all of these words are yours. You may, you may speak this every day to yourself and know all of this is true. All right? So, Megaluna Hesuke Mu Tonkurion. Your soul is redeemed by Jesus to praise Jesus. And, verse 47, Kai Eg Agalisan Ta Numa Mu Epetotheo To Sotere Mu. And it rejoices, the spirit of me, upon the God of the salvation of me. It's a repetition. It's a couplet. Hebrew poetry will also say the same thing twice in a row. What's the difference between your soul and your spirit? Now, we don't have time for that today if there is an answer. I would say that here, though, what she's doing is saying that no matter how you phrase it, when you know what God has done, you will praise him for it. Yeah? Your spirit will be lifted by it. Does that mean suffering never exists? No, it's in the suffering that the spirit is lifted to see a path through it. A God who's bigger than it. 48 says, Hate epeblepsin epetein tapainosin tes dules autu. That's the first half of it. And he has seen upon the affliction of the slave of him. Now, from that point in the text, it seems to make a small turn. So let me suggest to you that the slave of him is not Mary first. She's not talking about herself first. She's talking about who she'll talk about at the end of this thing, Israel. Verse 54. Anta labata Israel, right? You have you have raised up or helped Israel. She sees herself not just as an individual, but as part of a broader body of people. And remember, again, this body of people has been brought back from their exile, promised a double portion, maybe seen something of it in the Maccabees, but not exactly, and certainly no resurrection and final Messiah. And now, indeed, here he comes, yes? So when she says, you look upon the affliction of your slave, she's not saying just herself, but herself as a member of this people the Christian church, in every time and place waiting for the fulfillment of all these things. Huh? Um, I also wanted to say about, uh, mm, ah, maybe I'll remember it and come back to it. The rest of 48, after he has seen the affliction of his servant Israel, uh, she seems again to turn, and now she's going to talk about herself more directly. Idu means behold, gar apa tu nun Makariusin me pasai hai genai. Behold, for from the now, they will bless me all the generations. I really would like to spend more time on the word generations. I don't know enough about it, but it means that in, I think, that there is more than one set of people alive on earth at any given time. And that in some way that God can see and we maybe can't always, they're changing. Now, every family can show you this very easily. At any given time, you usually will have three generations alive. Sometimes four, yeah, but usually three. And then one drops off, the other bumps on. And so in any 40-year period, you have these three groups that are passing along from youth to age to old age. And that 
generating, that changing of adult to new generation of people, procreation of people, is what the Bible says God's watching, he's in control of, is where the nations come from, and he shall never pass away no matter how we shift and change, whether it again be your family or a big society, from generation to generation. Notice how, though, um, oh, I'm sorry, that's, that's verse 50. So all generations call her blessed. Verse 49, uh, epoisin moi megala ha dunatas, so, and he has done to me great, the strong, and holy, the name of him. Now, English probably says he has done great things for me. That's, that is what it means, but there's something uh, more poetic going on here, right? So it's not just great anything. It's that his greatness has done mighty things, right? There, there, there's a double emphasis. Uh, there's an amplification of how impossible the things that God has done in the past are. And now remember, what is she actually talking about? Now, for herself, she means he is not only saving all of Israel, but that he is going to enter into her own flesh. He's going to be formed out of her own DNA. That the Father and the Spirit will overshadow her so that the most impossible thing of all, maybe even more than a death that comes back, as a resurrection? I mean, we have those before this in history. Jesus, or not Jesus, um, Elijah, Elijah, they raised people from the dead. There's no virgin birth, right? This is, this is profound. The mighty one has done great things for me, she says. Now I want you to take this and remember it's yours. What is given to Mary is given to all Christians. And so when you come up today and get the Lord's Supper and receive it in your hand, the mighty one has done great things for you and holy is his name. And he enters into you to be again the God-bearer. And these same words again are inspiring you with that same truth. So none of this is just about Mary. She is the emblem of all of us in faith, receiving, and then having the confidence to stand on what has been received. Yeah. So again, he does mighty things because of his name. And verse 50, Kai taught Helaos. You can maybe remember this one, Elaos, Eleison. It's mercy, mercy. Kyrie Eleison, Lord have mercy. Kaita Elaos altu es geneos. That's your generation's word again. Kai geneos, tois fabamunes auton. So his mercy is from generation even to generation upon those who fear him, it says. We already talked about the generations things a little bit. But what does it mean to fear God? It means that when he says something's true, you believe it's true. So if he says, don't do that or you'll die, you'll be like, ooh, I don't want to do that. I'll die. It's scary. If he says, believe that I'm with you and fear no one, and it's like, well, I'm not going to fear you because I'm more afraid of him than you, and he's behind me and on my side. Yeah? So again, those who fear God are those who believe what he says. Whenever the Bible talks this way, that's, that's what it means. Yeah? Um, uh, he's with those who fear him, verse 51. Epoesin kratas en brachioni autul. He has made strength, a different kind of strength that we mentioned earlier. Kratas, it's like war. Uh, he's made strength with the arm of him. And then diaskapisin, this is a tough word. Epirephanus dion cardis auton. So his arm is strong, which means he can do whatever he wants. But what's he do? He scatters the arrogant in the thoughts 
of their hearts. He lets people lie to themselves. Now, let's take a step back here. We're praising God. He's amazing. He's reached out to save Israel. He's entered into Mary specifically to do this. Because of that, we know he now enters into us. This is the great strength of his might. And as he does it, he's also scattering the arrogance in the pride of their conceit. But doesn't Jesus love everybody? Yes, he does. Is everybody going to believe in Jesus? No, they're not. Why is that? God hasn't answered that question for us, but he's told us very clearly, not everybody will believe in Jesus. And when they don't, it'll be because they listen to their heart. When God decides to no longer tell them the truth, he lets a veil overshadow them if it wasn't already there, and their heart becomes the discernment tool for believing truth. Now, Christians, your heart's not for that. Your heart is to be submitted and reformed to the filter of the word of God so that it is purified according to the will, mind, heart of Christ. But without that, all you have at the end of the day is your imagination. Everybody else in the world that's not a Christian, they're running around with their imagination. There are stories they tell that sound real. We live on a planet. It flies through the sky, right? I mean, those, those aren't like unreal. But again, if that's all you got is like what that means and how I can think about it, that's not much hope, honestly. And then hear this. God is cursing the damned by trapping them in those thoughts. They're so entertained by Netflix, they don't care. That's not good. That's not good at all. That is, in fact, God giving the people over to their destruction, right? And see that Mary then, whenever, she, whenever we see God giving people over to destruction, Mary says, good. That's so different than the last hundred years of Christianity. We don't want anyone to walk away mad. We've got to change what we do to make everybody happy here. Oh, did they get upset because of this or that that the Bible says? Maybe, maybe that's old-fashioned. Yeah? That's been the hundred years here. As opposed to the fear of God and the recognition that the more the people leave, the more likely it's all going to burn down. And so maybe we want to come out from her, my people, and establish again prayer that those of us who would like to live quiet, peaceful lives may be supported, so we do so. And those who want to chase their hearts into destruction do so far away, if possible. Hmm? Don't miss then that your own heart is the source of your own temptation and that when God saves you, he saves you to bring your heart closer to his own. He wants you to have David's heart. He wants you to have Elisha's heart. He wants you to have Moses' heart because all those men's hearts were formed by him. Huh? And why, again, the Psalms, the Psalms, the Psalms? Because they're literally the heart of God in your mouth for you. Yeah, for you. All right, so he scatters wickedness in, in his own imagination. In his own words, they lie themselves into confusion. Kathelen dunastas apathronon. He has pulled down the mighty from their thrones. This is again about how he will not let the evildoer set himself up so as to destroy everything, but will save you from the evildoer by destroying the evildoer, sometimes letting the suffering hit you too, like a flood in which you're in an ark, right? And the ark again is the body of Christ, the word and sacrament, the truth of the church. He cast down the mighty from their thrones. Is he going to cast down America? I don't know. Do we deserve it? Absolutely. 
We've deserved it for a long time, way before 2020. We've deserved it. Is it going to happen? Looks like we might do it to ourselves from where I'm sitting. For what that's worth, it's not worth much. More important is to remember that as the nations in which we wish we could put our trust rise and fall among us while we wait for our Lord's return, there is another throne in which the mighty one has already been cast down from. Luther says it well in his hymn, uh, you know, that there was a, oh, I'm going to lose it. Um, Christ Jesus lay in death strong bands for our affliction given. There's a great line about how he's entered hell and stolen the crown from death's pale brow forever. Uh, uh, so uh, this idea, um, pardon me as I, as I catch that thought, that the devil is, was on the throne of humanity, that you're going to serve somebody, that you're a slave to the devil until Christ saves you. But that in the cross, in the death of Christ, he has in fact cast the devil off his throne, which was your heart and no longer is as your heart is returned to God in Christ. Yeah, He's cast down the mighty from their thrones and he has lifted up. There's the afflicted again, the tapanas, the ana, uh, the one who suffers, the one who is weak, the one who is powerless, the one who knows he's a poor, miserable sinner. He has filled the hungry with good things. You can hear a little reflection of, of Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. And the last thing we'll really dwell on here is the rich. I've talked about this idea with you before. Um, it's one we're going to do again and again because it, as a group, we got to get this one and we got to be okay with it. The Bible's worldview actually teaches there's two types of people. Rich and poor, or elite and common. Now, being elite or common can be based upon the crowd you're in. So in any group of 10 people, if you ask them all to like run a sprint, someone's going to be elite, probably. Someone will beat everybody else, one of them, right? They're elite. And then someone will be last. Well, they're not elite. You know, they're, they're closer to what common is, but there'll be a pile in the middle. That's common. This just happens in life and it happens again on every level. At a certain point in government, well, everyone who's in government is elite compared to those who are not, but then there's like elite governments, right? And we live in a country where there are layers upon layers upon layers of this reality so that we talk about Joe Biden, Donald Trump, blah, blah, blah. We talk about the people who are actually elite. You don't really talk about the local mayor as much as you about the national politics. But, but here's the thing. We're commoners. We don't get to talk to the elites. They put themselves on a box and they tell us to believe what it says. They don't listen to us at all. They're very far away. Now, that's why it's valuable to know that God's on your side as the afflicted one who's not on the throne, as the one who has no power in this life. And this isn't new, America. This is the way it's been in every civilization always. There's people at the top that take cream off the top. And for a while, sometimes they do well. So we keep sending it to them. And then someone gets in charge and they milk it to death and it all dies. You can watch every history in history doing this. Huh? When it dies, that is the opportunity for the Christians. That's where God's most at work. Because everyone gets confused and scared and we can stand there like a lighthouse, like a city built on a rock and say, we have the way in which you should go. But that again means the tearing down of the thrones and the lifting up of we who are weak. We who are afflicted, we are common. Embrace being common. Embrace being 
weak and know that that's who God always fights for. Mm. Come. Okay. Verse 54. Anta labeto Israel paidas autu. He has helped Israel. Paidas, it probably is translated as servant, right? It's the word boy. Like boy, like his son. It's not the main word for son, but it means boy. He has embraced his son Israel. The other thing I want you to catch from that verse about the embracing, anta labano, the word there has the prefix ante, like being against something. We, we do that in English all the time. That prefix ante comes from Greek, but it doesn't always mean against. Um, instead, it has more to do with like its replacement. So you can see how your your anti, oh, what is it? Uh, your arch enemy, the anti-hero, is attempting to replace the hero, right? So you can kind of see how that happens. Um, but the main idea isn't, isn't the bad. The main idea is the replacement. And so what's going on in this text, when it says that God helps Israel, it doesn't say he helps. It says he replaces Israel. Does that mean he takes Israel away and then not long, we don't get saved? No, no, no. How does he replace Israel? On the cross with Jesus. He replaces Israel in remembrance of his mercy with himself. Oh my goodness, according to the covenant, right? Promised to Abraham and to his spermati. Don't miss that. His seed, his offspring, spermati in the Greek, singular, into all the ages. So that sperm, that offspring, that seed, that one boy, Jesus, born of that one woman, Mary, is more than just one boy born of one woman. He is the God-man coming forth from humanity, the fallen bride of Christ made a whore by ourselves, restored to bridal reality by his redemption, which is a marriage idea from the Old Testament too. I mean, I barely talked about Mary today and we're way past you know, time for us to go home and all this. So take from it this. There's, there's no end to the Magnificat. We could spend a ton more time on it. But why is it here? Because the Christians supposed to praise Jesus. And even though praise and worship as a movement has been very bad for the Lutheran church. It has not helped us. Part of the way it hasn't helped us is as we fought about guitar versus organ, all of us with organ have stopped praising because we're so busy trying not to be like those who we don't want to be like, who are busy only praising and never sacramenting or doing it rarely, shoving the sacrament to the side while we put the band up front, which is problematic in my mind. Huh? But just because someone does it wrong doesn't mean we have to stop. This is where I started today. Lutherans have painted ourselves into our corner by saying we can't talk this way or that way because the bad people do in some way and it ruins stuff. But if you haven't noticed, the bad people talk anyway and the devil is harping and yapping is destroying the language anyway. So what we really want to do is recapture what the Bible actually says. And what it says is magnify Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Magnify Jesus. Walk out into your world this week and remember that you bear God with you. He's gone with you according to the flesh in the body and blood of this supper so that there's no question in your mind. So you know his heart's beating in your chest. But then also, don't just take that and forget about the mirror you've looked into. Remember that the mirror goes with you as the text. And that if nothing else, if you can get one hallelujah out of your mouth this week somewhere else out in the world, that's light in the midst of darkness. That's prayer in the midst of unbelief, and that's offense against a world that isn't ready. They're not even playing defense. They're just tearing down their own goals right now. Yeah? Hallelujah. 
in the name of Jesus.